Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast episode, I got to tell you a little thing or two about our amazing sponsors at the North Spokane Hemp Company. You can find them at NorthSpokaneCBD.com, and they are here to fill all your CBD needs. If you have aches, if you have pains, if you have inflammation, if your dog has any of these things, guess what? They got products for pets as well. If you have any of these things, this is not a medical advice show. We do not give medical advice, but many, many people have reported success using CBD to help aches, pains, insomnia, and all sorts of things. I encourage you to do your own research, but if you have and you're looking to try some CBD products, there's no better place to go than the North Spokane Hemp Company. Why, you may ask? Well, it's run by a libertarian, for one. For two, you get to support your favorite podcast by giving us a little kickback every time you order and use discount code Lions, which leads me to number three, which is that you get 15% off your order when you use the discount code Lions. Not only that, you get free shipping nationwide for any order over $50. Do not miss out. Go to North Spokane. That's S-P-O-K-A-N-E, NorthSpokaneCBD.com. Be sure to use discount code Lions at checkout. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, my guest today is the creator of the School Sucks Project, which you can find in the form of the School Sucks Podcast, a YouTube channel, and the online community. I'm very pleased to welcome, for the very first time, Brett Vinat. Brett, are you ready to roar? I am. It is great to be with you, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome, Brett. Well, it's great to have you on, and it's it's probably a crime that I that I haven't had you on the show yet because I, you know I like to consider myself one of the the first of the, sort of the modern wave of of libertarian podcasters. I started just one month before the Tom Wood Show, mm. but you've got us all beat. You've been doing this for like over a decade uh, with, with the School Sucks podcast. So uh, I really want to get more into your journey, how you started the podcast, how you kind of came down this road of looking at education in a totally different way. So I think the first place to start will be to ask you, Brett, when did you first realize that? school sucks <laughs> uh i think i was i was i was sitting on the bus it was like 1983 uh it was first grade and i just started crying i was like this can't be the way this can't be how it's going to be i was six first day of first grade um it had it was a bit of a roller coaster it had its ups and downs elementary school was tolerable um but i i never really enjoyed it i felt like middle school was a particularly dark time my goodness and I wasn't really a great student in, in high school, so that always makes it uh, an even less pleasant experience. But I would say that, you know, I, I understood even after I went to college and I went to grad school that, that something was wrong. And even though I found many aspects of it displeasing right from the beginning, right from age six, uh, I think it was when I actually started work uh, in education, ironically, I think I was, I was like 21 at the time, and I saw how the system worked, that I realized that, you know, I had young nieces and nephews at the time, and they were like, you know, why, 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 energetic, look what I could do. And, you know, I'm working with kids who are like, you know, strong, young adults, capable, they got their whole lives ahead of them, and they couldn't even make eye contact with me. And I was like, what's in between these two periods of life, you know, like all this young optimism, energy, confidence. 
and you know a perfectly capable person who can't even make eye contact and, and mumbles at me. Uh, and what was in between was school, you know. And I think uh, you know I named the show "School Sucks" because I think it for too many of us sucks so many of those natural teaching tools out of us, you know. Um, so I realized it all along the way, and then really got hammered with it, Mark. Once I once I began my career in education, I think it's pretty interesting that you went into education despite having this uh, from a very very young age this aversion to school. Uh, even the fact that you said you weren't a good student. So how did you kind of take that that hatred or you know, just that feeling that this sucks? I don't want to be here. And what actually led you to pursue that as a as a career? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was in college and I was just kind of, you know, limping my way through that, uh, partying a lot. And there was this one history teacher and there's like a core curriculum for for the program that I was in where you have to take like a government class and a history class. And people said, this guy is so tough. You take 10 pages of notes every lecture. Uh, He's very demanding. And so I resisted this guy as long as I could. I, I don't think I took a class with him until I was like a junior in college and he taught history, which in high school had always been my least favorite subject. And, you know, I get into this class and I immediately fall in love with, with the subject. I'm like, I never knew this could be interesting. So I felt kind of betrayed by all the social studies crap that I had to sit through in public school. But now I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And I think this might be something uh, that I would like to do. So this this kind of coincided with my career starting um, while I was still in college. I took a job at a boarding school just because it was like a fairly high paying job for somebody who didn't have a bachelor's degree. It was right in the town where my my college was. It was a tough job. Uh, kids came from some some really rough places. They had some really like difficult backgrounds and and some pretty severe you know, emotional and behavioral issues, but that was like where my professional career actually started. And, you know, I worked in the residence part of it, doing like recreation and activities of daily living with the kids, but they had a school. And I said, you know, how can I get involved in this school now that I'm all, you know, motivated by these experiences that I had in college? And um, I, you know, started doing like uh, outdoor education as part of my job. I get to take kids kayaking and skiing and hiking and uh, various types of adventuring. And that was great. And then like uh, when I was 24, I asked the school if there was this campus on the school that nobody wanted to work at because the kids were, it was just a really, really sad, rough kind of place. It was separate from the rest of the boarding school. And I asked them to make me the lead teacher. And they did uh, because I saw it as a way to advance my career. And uh, And you had no degree at this point. I had had a four year degree. I had a bachelor's degree in communications, which I had earned in the year 2000 after starting in 1995. So the entire communications industry was basically revolutionized while I was getting an outdated education for, you know, 50 grand. Uh, And so when I graduated into like a a digital world, I mean, that wasn't the world that I left to go into the bubble of college, right? And I went to a small school, so it didn't have much of an endowment. They weren't, uh, you know, updating technology. They didn't have people who had their fingers on the pulse of that industry working there. And so, you know, my my college advice now is like, well, find a way to opt out if you can, and if you have to go to college, go to a big school that has, you know, a, a large endowment so they have, you know, all the up-to-date stuff uh, so you can actually make sure that when you graduate, what you learned is still going to be relevant and they're, you know, they're adapting to 
industry changes for whatever you're studying. So I had basically, you know, a meaningless degree, even though I was really interested in communications when I went into school. And, um, you know, I, I actually turned that into like getting a teaching certificate. The school that I worked at, they actually would pay for it. So, um, yeah, I started a master's program and a teaching certificate, but I was 24 and all I had was this four year degree in a completely different subject. And I wound up being a lead special ed teacher, uh, of an entire campus. So that was, I mean, that was cool. It was a nice career jump. Um, but I did it because the job sucked and I knew if I put a year or two in there, uh, I could go and ask them to make me a history teacher at another school they ran. And fortunately, that's what happened. So by the time I was like, I don't know, 26, I had a full-time history teaching job at a private school in Vermont. So That's a pretty incredible path, just starting from what you said at the top of the show, crying on the school bus, hating school so much, probably associating that negativity with education. And then, and I, don't, I don't know how, how much of a bad student you were, if it was just in class or if you were acting up a bit too, but you ended up teaching, I guess, essentially the, the, the bad kids at, at the boarding school. Yeah, absolutely. And Brett, there's so many layers to the conversation about education, and it's, it's hard to know exactly where to start. But I, I want to start with uh, probably the area where I think most of the public generally just takes it completely for granted. Uh, it's changing slowly, but for the most part, I think most people presume that, yes, the government should, of course, take money, uh, build schools, uh, create them for the community. The federal government, of course, must be involved at the same time. And that's how our children will be educated, because that's what wealthy industrial countries do. We pay for schools, and it educates our children. What's the problem with this just, just this general concept that I think for the most part is still held held dearly by by most of our society. Well, yeah, I, I, I think what happens is people it, it's a boiled frog problem, isn't it? Right. Like uh, it just continues to increase and do more and more like all aspects of government. And, you know, I remember when when they were rolling out Common Core, I said, watch in five years, if anyone talks about getting rid of this, people will say, well, how could we ever live without it? Because, you know, once it becomes, uh, you know, concretized like that, there's really no going back. So there, there's this ratcheting effect that we've seen in, in public schooling for, gosh, 150 years in this country now where, you know, first it comes over from, you know, Central Europe, which is like uh, it's being used in this authoritarian kingdom of Prussia. Uh, they bring it to Massachusetts Uh, Almost immediately, they make a compulsory attendance law there, but then it's very, very slowly spreading around the country, and it's not compulsory. It's like, yeah, we're using this model, but now it exists in New York, and now it exists in, uh, you know, the next state, the next state, or the next territory. I mean, there might have only been twenty-something states. Can you explain like what what that Prussian model is for people that don't really, you know, necessarily understand its origins, and like what what the purpose of school or school was at the time? Well, it was uh, it was a multi-purpose system. The Prussian society was was really interesting and really like class separated. Uh, Prussians had three schools and they were all set up in the first couple decades of the 1800s. So just a little backstory on Prussia. Prussia was a militaristic kingdom that is basically its you know footprint is inside uh, what is present day Germany. And they had a very, very successful 18th century militarily, and they were able to expand their territory, and they wanted to continue to do that in the 19th century. Unfortunately, at the very beginning of the 19th century, they bump into this guy who's also trying to expand his territory. His name's Napoleon, and he is great yeah, at at expanding territories, and they kind of get beaten back, and they suffer a 
really embarrassing uh, military, a few, but one is um, uh, called Yena is particularly memorable and frustrating for the Prussian aristocracy. So they start looking at ways to regiment their common population a little bit better. And what this ultimately becomes is a three-tiered school system. So at the top, I think it's called Ekedemienschulen, which was less than 1% of the population. And this is basically the people who will run the social order, like the um, the ruling class of society. the equivalent of like elite universities here or, or the, that, pa- that, that kind of path anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And then at the, the second level, there's something called the Realschulen, which basically means real school, where a management class or the, the political class, uh, the people who will run the society for the ruling class, they're educated there. That's probably less than 5% of the population. Everybody else goes to what uh, is called the Vokschule which is the people's I school. I wish we had cool names right? for our schools like this, for our, for our system. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- even if we didn't get the names, we, de- yeah, we definitely we got, got a lot else. of their principles. <laughs> right? So, um, you know, at this level of school, it's about uh, military obedience, uh, cooperation, uh, how to be a good civil servant, how to uh, be a manageable citizenry uh, by thinking alike on, on most issues. Uh, so you have conformity, compliance, uh, those kinds of things. What you need to run a stable society and also have uh, enough people for factories and, and military, right? So it's a, it's an extremely uh, it's an extremely hierarchical top down structure. You have the elites, you have the people that are not quite elites, but they work right for them. And then you have everybody else who's just taught to become a soldier or become just a, a kind of. Uh, someone who just goes with the plan, goes with the system, whatever the system may be, there's someone who can now do X, Y, Z, follow order one, two, three, and just go along to get along. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. So how did this become the system that while it slowly worked its way, it wasn't compulsory at first, slowly worked its way through our public school system to the point that all of our public schools and probably I I would imagine actually most of our private schools as well are essentially based on this model. Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, Americans were very interested in Prussia. In fact, the British were very interested in Prussia and the uh, French were very interested in Prussia because they had such a well-managed society. Now, Americans in the middle of the 1800s are looking at this kind of regimentation. They're seeing a society where the writing is on the wall about slavery ending. Uh, there is immigration from other countries. There is the beginning of an industrial revolution. They already have uh, systems set up like this to deal with with mining, um, like coal mining. So in the middle of the 1840s, 1850s, uh, there's this religious, uh, he was... Uh, he was a very interesting figure. His name was Horace Mann. He's mm-hmm. considered the father of American public education. He visits Prussia, and other people are doing this as well, and they issue back to their own governments uh, what are called traveler's reports. Um, so Horace Mann goes, he sees the schools when they're not in session. He interviews schoolmasters and teachers, and he decides that based on uh, – what he observes, which isn't much, certainly not any teacher-student interaction. I, no students are interviewed that I know of. Uh, he 
imports this system to the state of Massachusetts where it's quickly adopted. Now, the the all states won't have compulsory attendance laws for like 70 years. It's like after the first Prussian schools come to Massachusetts, like it won't be 70 years until every state, which I think at that time, 70 years later, there might have been like, I don't know, 40, 40 something states. Uh, it would it would take a while for that to happen. And there's also like a, a slow creep, as there is with so many of these things. So in the beginning, it's like, all right, well, for all boys age nine to 12, they'll have to go to school on a mandatory basis six weeks a year. Right. But once you get that accepted, why not 12 weeks a year? Why not boys uh, 6 to 14? Why not boys and girls 6 to 14? And, and it's, it's a very gradual process, but that's how it spreads. I've even seen, uh, I saw some politicians in California calling for like ending summer break from school even recently and calling for extending the school day. It seems like this has, this process has still not stopped. Like just how much more time can we keep your kids in these institutions instead of out there doing anything else? Well, I mean, that's government, right? When all you have is a hammer. I mean, that's that's any aspect of government. When you only have one way to do something, right, which requires compulsion, and that thing doesn't get the results you want, it's not like you could ever say, oh, well, geez, I guess we should do something entirely different right. or we should rethink this whole thing. It's like, no, we should do it more and we should do it harder because that's all we can do. That's the only way we can walk. All our momentum right. goes that way. So that's always been the case with school. And of course, um, it's, it's children in this country that have always, you know, paid the price. So, so what do you think is the biggest price, I guess, that, that children pay going to public school? What's, the, what's like the, what are the biggest issues you would say that, like you said in the beginning, you saw these kids that were so happy and so full of energy and then they go through school and they come out and, and it's like, it's like you've, you've completely transformed them and not in a positive way, not in a way that makes them, you know, better thinkers or uh, innovators or anything like that. That. Uh, what do you think are some of those biggest issues that that take a lot of that joy out of children? That's a that's a great question. As I try to narrow it down yeah, from sure. a thousand things, right? Uh, I think it's obviously really significant that uh, educating children is taken away from people who actually care about them and put into the hands of strangers and bureaucrats, right? So you have uh, a family and community model of education, which what is what existed in this country originally, even if it was religious-based, fine, right? That is a, a community, there's a high level of trust, and it's transferred into this sort of, uh, this collectivism and this sort of industrial system of education uh, where children are counted more like beans. Mm -hmm. Than actual people. And that's not to say that there aren't all kinds of lovely people teaching third grade in the elementary schools around this country, and that those people don't care deeply about you know chil the children that they get to work with. And I've had teachers like that, and I've known teachers like that. And I like to think that at one part of my career, at least I was a teacher like that, even though I wasn't in a public school. So there's plenty of good people uh, involved in this. But another problem over the last 50 years is that they themselves have ceded more and more control to a distant, like federal bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the system since the 1960s has become more and more impersonal, where you even have these people who 
you know, they get into education, I think, for a lot of the right reasons. And then they wind up being very frustrated because their hands are tied uh, and they they have to be facilitators of a more like, you know, scientifically managed system uh, from afar. So I would say that everything starts there with the transfer of, you know, family, community, self-directed education, which is another way that education always would have worked all the way back to ancient Greece to this, this collectivized bureaucracy uh, uh, for, edu- you know, educating people uh, for industrial uh, and government purposes. What's the problem with people out there that there might, there might be a lot of people, there are a lot of people that uh, kind of uh, agree with a lot of the problems of public school, uh, but they don't think, uh, as you advocate for, I believe, just abolishing these schools altogether. Uh, what would you say to people that think, well, okay, you have a lot of good points. Maybe the system isn't perfect, but we just need a little bit of reform. We just need to open things up. Uh, we just maybe need to have some vouchers here, uh, some charter schools and this sort of thing. Why is that approach not really addressing the core problems that we see with education? Well, okay, so that's an interesting question. I mean, I I really wouldn't even say that at this point I'm for the abolition of schools. Uh, you know, I'm trying to send a signal out into the world where it's like, hey, if you want to get your kids out, uh, like I like I like to think of people who have my message, and you know, I would include myself in this as lifeboats going by a shipwreck. And if you want to get in, you can. Uh, we're not going you know, uh, you, you to wreck have... your boat and force you in, but if you want to hop in, we're right. here. We don't have room for everybody anyway right now, you know, Um, and I I think currently and sadly, there's a lot of people who will just never, never take the time or or never ask the questions. And a lot of people, I think, are really incentivized against asking these kinds of questions. They rely on the schools as a form of, of daycare. So they're they're never going to be able to shift their paradigm that much. And I I don't fault people for that. I don't shame people for that. I think it's it's completely understand and understandable. What we're talking about is not for everybody. Um, I would be, you know, perfectly happy to exit this world with one percent of the US population doing what I advocate. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that saves so many people and potentially adds so much joy and satisfaction and fulfillment uh, uh, back to the lives uh, of children. And I would be I would be perfectly satisfied with that. So, um, you know, that's my comment on not really for abolition. I mean, it would be great. I would I, I would love to watch that happen in my you're, lifetime. You're more as through well. abolition through like a, the natural process of people making the decision to to abandon the system over time as opposed to like, let's shut them all down by force or something. Yeah, I, I think I'm more of just like a public school liberation right, advocate, right. right? For for the individual who's who's faced with that choice. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think I probably said in the very first episode of School Socks back in 2009, like, uh, I'm not promoting any kind of a political solution. Um, you know, in my early days of libertarianism, I was very much a purist. I said, you know, the, the unschooling is the way this needs to be. We're not talking about uh, vouchers or any of these things because that's just distraction. It's just apologizing for the the already existing system. And, you know, as I've observed a lot in the last decade and i see how um you know lots of young people especially in inner city communities are really suffering uh through those school experiences if uh you know a charter school opportunity comes along or a voucher opportunity comes along and that's the best they can do right now 
you know, that's the, the only escape hatch that exists for them. Fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to oppose it in principle just because I think that it, it's, I mean, really as a, as a policy, it's just kind of spackling over, uh, giant cracks in the dam, of course, as far as the whole system is concerned. But, um, you know, if, if it helps people, uh, I'd, be, I'd be happy to see children helped. I'd be happy to see children escape. If that's a way that that can happen, fine. But I don't think you can insert like a free market principles into a coercive system mm-hmm. and expect to change the system. The coercive nature of the system will eventually crush those things. Like case in point, as soon as people started talking about vouchers, you know, a teacher's union, I forget whether it was the NEA or the other one, um, they're going to say, look, you know, this is public money. And to be good stewards of public money, if it's going to go to private institutions, the people who work in those private institutions must come under the umbrella of our union, right? They must follow the same rules. And, and what it also means is it's extending a kind of regulatory structure into private schools. So those schools are going to, to lose their independence, you know, to form a, a, uh, uh, a partnership, I guess, with the larger government now system. Now they have to follow the same standards and you know, set up a lot of the same curriculum. And at, at some point, you can maybe even barely distinguish them from the public school. Yeah. So it's almost like a form of regulatory capture. Right. So like I, I, I see that as a, I like I'd like to see some poor kid in, in some, you know, crummy inner city area, escape the school through a voucher or through a charter school. Uh, but I certainly don't uh, think it's, it's a, you know, like a panacea to the entire problem by any means. Hey, hey, kitty cats. I got to take a quick break from today's episode to tell you a little bit more about today's sponsors at the North Spokane Hemp Company. You can find them at northspokanecbd.com. And if you have any interest in trying CBD products, if you've had aches, if you've had pains, if you're getting a little up there and your joints are starting to hurt like sometimes they do for me, you might want to try out some CBD. We are not a medical advice show. We are not going to give you medical advice. I encourage speaking to your doctor about CBD and doing your own research. But if you have done so and you decide you would like to try it, you got to head over to North Spokane. That's Spokane, S-P-O-K-A-N-E, NorthSpokaneCBD.com. They've got everything you could want. They've got flour. They've got tincture. They've got CBD for pets. They've got everything. And you get 15% off when you use discount code LIONS to help support this show. What more is there to ask for? Head over to NorthSpokaneCBD.com and do not forget to use your privileges as a listener of this program by using discount code LIONS at checkout. What do you think is maybe the biggest challenge in communicating the difference between, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times self-directed education and how education to me is, is so much different than school. So how, how do you communicate that concept to people, especially as we said in this world where it's just so accepted, the system we have is so accepted because, you know, the generation before us had it and the generation before us had it. And now it just is what it is. And I, most people just seem to blindly accept it. So how do you begin to, I guess, get to, uh, you know, crack some of those minds open a little bit and get people to see that this is a going to a physical building with a certain structure is a compi- completely different thing than is actually educating yourself, bet- bettering yourself and developing skills. I don't know. I, I think if I, if I got resistance from like adults about this idea, you mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I might ask them, how do you like to learn? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you learn best? Uh, how do you learn the most? How do you learn most effectively? Is it when, you know, your learning pursuit is intrinsically motivated, when it's passion driven, when you see a purpose to what you want to do, you know, you can go out and 
find the information on your own or find the people um, you know you need to teach you, like whether it's by a course or um, you know do your own research, or uh, would you like to be captured? You know, put on some kind of conveyance and taken to a building and held there uh, until you can prove that you learned it on a test. You know, like unschooling, what I've always said is like unschooling for kids, that kind of self-directed, unstructured learning is how adults learn, right? It, it is the way that adults choose to learn. And to whatever degree most adults do this in spite of their schooling, the way they maintain enjoyment in learning. And I think, you know, in the last like 15 or 20 years, we've seen a real surge in like DIY culture like people like to be able to figure things out for themselves especially if it means i can save money and feel accomplished on like some kind of home improvement project i, I pat myself on the back when i can just look up a youtube video and figure out how to like change my windshield wipers like i'm not a handy person at all but i i did that and i was like yes, right. i did it. <laughs> it it saved me like maybe ten dollars but i was excited that i learned how to do it from somebody else and i was able to do it myself it's just it's a good feeling when you can sort of teach yourself or teach yourself uh something that someone else is helping you with and doing it and then just going out and doing it. Right. So imagine you were six, right? So you, today you've got one discovery to make. Like, how do I get these windshield wipers right. off my car and get new ones on? But when you're six, any day you could have 10,000 discoveries to make, sure. right? And if you were able to choose them and, and kind of pursue them on your own, instead of in this, in this forced way uh, that, that are about somebody else's priorities, that, you know, not even the teacher... The, the loving third grade teacher we spoke of earlier in that classroom, these directives aren't even coming from her. They're coming from somewhere else. She might not even be enthusiastic about passing them along to the students. So I think um, intrinsically motivated, self-directed, passion-driven, like adults should be able to identify with that, even if they sort of unthinkingly support the idea of school, that that is a superior path to learning than forcing somebody to do something. And you could, I, as much as people who, who are uh, against alternative education or self-directed education or pro-school, you could start, if they, if they were just willing to have an honest conversation with you, uh, what, what did school do for your attitude about reading? Did school make you love reading? Did reading, uh, uh, what's the book we all have to read about the kids on the island? I was just talking oh, uh, about it. There's a big... Flies, no, Lord kids. of the Flies. <laughs> like, I know flies, there are flies in there right? somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Did being forced to read Lord of the Flies make you an enthusiastic reader? Did, you know, changing for gym class make you excited about athletics? You know, and President Kennedy uh, initiated that program in the 1960s. And 30 years later, this was the fattest country in the world. I hated gym right? class so much. <laughs> Not because yeah. I didn't like like I loved going out and doing sports with my friends, uh, running around, playing tag, doing outdoor activities. When it came to gym class, it was like, OK, we have 45 minutes. I have to go change and then I have to go get sweaty or do something, some annoying you know, activity, learn to th throw a basketball 100 times over. And then I'm sweaty and I have to go back to my class. It was just a, it was just a grueling, disgusting experience and i was you know i didn't enjoy changing it's, it's really interesting <laughs> no yeah it's really interesting it's like hey do you like basketball oh you let's, do let's figure out Great. how you can hate it <laughs> let's let's see how it feels when it's an imposition right? right let's turn something you like into an imposition which sounds almost impossible but school finds a way
So if you could get people who support the public system, like I said, unthinkingly, not to be you know overly critical or judgmental, like I, I understand, I understand, especially if they have to send their kids there. Uh, but if you could get them to think about their own experience honestly, and then, oh man, you could throw this question at them. What did you learn? You were there 15,000 hours, 12 years, 180 days for 12 years. Start listing as many valuable skills that you learned that you use in your life today as you can. Just go as long as you can. I'm already done. I'll give you <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you $100 if it goes on for longer right. than a minute. Yeah. I mean, I, so I guess I, we can uh, say I learned the basics like math or what maybe tying my shoes. I'm pretty sure my parents could have taught me that too. I mean, I can't really think of everyday life, like actual skills that I use to create or uh, to make money that came from that public school system at all. Right. But you also get an association. I mean, one of the most unfortunate things is that, yeah, well, you do learn things in school. Like I learned, I mean, my mom taught me how to read and write a little bit before I went to school, but I learned how to read and write better in school. I learned how to multiply and divide in school, but I also learned to make an association between learning and pain and learning and boredom, right? And learning and loss of control, lack of independence. And, you know, people graduate from the system and they don't have the most positive attitude about continuing their education. And when I say continuing their education, I don't mean going to a four, get a four year right. degree and then go to grad right. school. I mean, like, Education is a lifelong process and most people don't really have, even if they never like admit it to themselves or out loud, they don't really have a positive orientation towards that. It almost just uh, maybe stagnates the, what, what would have been there, what the motivation and the passion that would have been there that we not spend so much time associating, like you said, learning and education with the pain, with the structure, with the boredom of the whole system. Right. And look at the cacophony that it has produced in our society politically. Go on Twitter, go on Facebook, look at how many people are blathering in this political conversation and they know absolutely nothing. They're just repeating things that they heard because that was the easy way to get to an endpoint, right? To achieve a goal of I know something. We obviously have needs to make meaning of the world around us, uh, but because a lot of us are lazy learners, if you want to call it learners, uh, we're looking for shortcuts. We're, you know, we're looking for gurus and, and leaders instead of people realizing that, you know, they have the capacity to lead their own thoughts. Now, what's even more frightening about people that, you know, people just thinking they know everything or, or not knowing much, but blathering on about it, uh, about, you know, whatever issues is that there's almost a pride. They almost have a pride in not knowing. I, I see sometimes that whereas, and I think this might come from the school system as well. They'll say, well, the experts say this, or, you know, I heard this on CNN, or I heard this, you know, it's, it's really all just more calls to authority because that's how we're taught to get our information. We're taught to get it from a position of authority. It comes from above and now we have this knowledge and it seems like people just regurgitate that throughout the rest of their lives, especially when it comes to, to political dialogue. Uh, these experts said this, therefore I know this is true any arguments that you can give me don't don't matter because I've already been told from above what the truth is. Right. And I, I think that that lack of interest in learning also contributes to like an absence of understanding of the great conversation. Like I'm guilty of this myself as well. I didn't understand when I started doing this show. I had no idea how big the world of ideas were, you know, or was. Um, I, I had no idea like 
how many uh, you know great criticisms there were, or interesting, at the very least, interesting and challenging criticisms there were of libertarian ideas. When I found them, I did exactly the same thing uh, when you know left wing ideas were dumped on me in college. I said, well, there could never be another way that a rational person could think, and I certainly shouldn't take anyone else seriously if they don't think like me. And that was really crippling, right? And that was really limiting because when you're sitting there parked at a rest stop and pretending it's a destination, uh, you know, like that's that's a, a super counterproductive and and sort of ultimately unrewarding way to be. Um, but there was something very satisfying about that. Like, oh, I could, you know, read this Rothbard book or this Tom Woods book and, uh, or what else was I into? Molyneux, Free Talk Live back then. Um and just be handed a kind of moral and intellectual superiority? How satisfying, you know? That was exactly what the payoff was of all the left-wing ideas were that I picked up in college. So, so you know, I wish I, wish I had actually waited and, and done a sort of better inventory, like a better audit of my own schooling, uh, my own schooled mindset before I started this show, because I think I took a lot of that into what I was doing. And I've kind of had to make a, you know, a spectacle of myself over the last decade. Like, you know, I'm still, I still love the ideas of liberty. I still promote them. Uh, but I, I like to think that I'm, I'm a better thinker and I'm willing to accept more challenges than I would have been 10 years ago, or that I'd be better, uh, I'd be better at meeting challenges. Like, I think I was also so sure of myself that I was ready to run out into the world with these ideas mm -hmm. and not be a very effective communicator of them. And I certainly saw, I mean, the podcast did fine, but I didn't have much success in my personal life and I actually burned quite a few bridges trying to do that. And I think that's all what you're talking about is all sort of part of self-directed education in a, in a sense. I mean, especially as, as podcasters, uh, we're always learning. We're always educating ourselves. We're always trying to improve. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've been doing this six years. You've been doing this for 10 years. Every, I don't know about every day, maybe there's days I don't podcast, but every week I'm constantly learning something new, some new little trick, uh, finding an error, figuring out how to fix it. Um, but when you, when you talk about, um, you know, I think what you're saying applies so much too, to, as you said, um, libertarian ideas, I mean, or, or any political ideas. Like when I listened to myself five years ago, I can barely stand it. Like, I don't even feel like I was, I was that free of a thinker <laughs> yeah. then either. Like I, I realized I was just repeating. I'm doing a lot of what I criticize people for. I was just repeating a lot of phrases and a lot of the same catchphrases over and over. Only mine were coming from Ron Paul or Murray Rothbard, but it's still the same thing. And I think we need to train ourselves to really be independent thinkers, thinkers, like actually thinking, not just regurgitating the ideas, but thinking them through in our own way. And, and when we can actually think through ideas in our own way, then we're able to teach them to others in our own way, not just repeat the slogans, not just repeat, not just say, go read Man, Economy, and State, and then you'll get it. <laughs> that, that, that approach doesn't work to anything. Right. Absolutely. I, I think it's also it's been interesting that since like the uh, the end of the Ron Paul revolution in 2012, we've seen the real world continuously test our yeah. ideas, like even even if indirectly. Um, and, you know, we look out at a lot of the problems that we see today and, and we realize like there's there's much more of a challenge than I think a lot of us thought maybe in 2007 or 2008 when we, we first, uh, you know, started to follow Ron Paul or whatever it was, or like for me, I think it was like 2006 when I first started to listen to free talk live. Like it all sounded great, but I was very, the world seemed a lot smaller then, right? We could see a lot less of the world in 2006 because 
everybody out there was quiet. You know, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, not that I knew about anyway. So um, this, <laughs> all of these people that I had so much faith in were all just silent. Now they all speak. <laughs> And I have less faith, you know, and that's something that that I'm trying to reconcile. Uh, I, I don't want to be cynical. I don't want to be I don't want to be a misanthrope. Uh, but I think that, you know, these ideas uh, have challenges as far as their adoption that I didn't understand 10 years ago. I didn't understand how far away some of it might be for most people. Do you mean in terms of just people accepting them or them being the right ideas or, uh, you know, people sort of translating and communicating those ideas in the right way? Because I, I think I kind of know what you mean. I mean, in, in, in the first Ron Paul run in 2008 and then later in 2012, it felt like, oh, we're almost there. We just got this. Everybody's getting it. He's popular. We're, you know, we're communicating with so many different people about these amazing ideas of individual liberty, individual freedom. And then you fast forward now and you're like, oh, that moment's that moment's gone. I mean, there's there's a lot of um, sort of uh, branches and flowers that have sprung off from it, th this podcast being one of them, uh, certainly. But uh, you realize how maybe not as close to rev revolutionary change as you might be, as you might think you are. And especially now when we see so much more, like you're saying, with Twitter, Facebook, you realize, OK, maybe we're not as all as clear and rationally and, and thinking the right way as I, as I think people are. Well, I think if you take it out of the political, like if you take the philosophy of liberty out of the political and you put it into the practical, it would be much more accessible for, for many more people. Unfortunately, like politics has needed to be a vehicle to, to spread the ideas. Right. I mean, that's like Ron Paul. Uh, I remember I was talking to uh, Jeffrey Tucker who, who knew Ron Paul for a long time. And he was kind of like, this was maybe like four years ago. We were having this conversation on my show and Jeffrey was kind of like lamenting where it's like, you know, Ron saw this thing as outreach, you know, in 2008, he saw it as a way he knew he was never going to be president. He saw it as a way to spread these ideas. It was effective to that end. I would, I would certainly say it was, it was hugely effective. How many people did it recruit, uh, you know, into, into libertarianism? Uh, but a lot of people also viewed it as a political movement, right? So it gets when when things get wrapped up in politics, no matter what politics they are, obviously, uh, they're going to become more confrontational. So I, I think, though, if you take it out of the uh, political and you put it into the practical and then you you separate it into domains that, you know, all people have, all people have concern about in areas of their lives. Like, do you want freedom in your relationships? Right. Do you want freedom in your finances? Do you want freedom in your work? Do you want freedom in location? Like who would say no to these mm -hmm. things? Who would say no? I want to be controlled in those areas. So, I mean, if you could, if you could get people in a in a non-hostile, non-confrontational way to imagine a freer world, category by category, in their lives, I think that's much more effective outreach. But you know, politics was the tool that Ron Paul had to use, and and that's a difficult thing for me to reconcile because that worked. To get it worked to recruit people, but it didn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? And and I, I think that you have to you'd have to work on a smaller scale and be far more patient. It's not just about um, it's not a numbers game, right? It's it's more qualitative than quantitative. 
I want to dig a little more into the idea of, of self-directed education because I think it's it's pretty easy for <laughs> you and me to conceptualize as adults now how we can self-direct our education. I mean, we, we both did it, at least with podcasting. I, I mean, I taught myself to podcast from scratch. Uh, I never really even hardly touched a microphone before, but we taught ourselves because, like you said before, we had a passion for it. We really wanted to do it, and then it's easy to learn when you want to do something because every every step of the process is, is exciting. Oh, I just learned how to edit audio. That's, that's exciting. Um, how, how do you... <laughs> sort of look at that same process but through the eyes of a child like i think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their their heads around that that concept of especially people that like we said are so used to this system as being what's accepted that children have to learn from a teacher in a school um and be told what to learn or else they're not going to learn anything because what kid's going to want to learn math what kids just want to go and read you know lord of the flies on their own uh maybe they don't need to read lord of the flies on their own would be my answer but uh how, how do you sort of translate that concept to adults like you and I who would totally get this concept of self-directed education as adults, but how do you try to show them that that is really the same as a child and why not only is it just as good for a child to learn that way, it's actually better and actually allows them to become more productive people. Sure. And it's not just adults like you and I, right? Like there is, is somewhere there's a high school principal who's totally bought into the system, but taught himself how to play the violin. Mm-hmm. Like that person right, right, exists, Right. right? You know, so so like they've seen the results of um, and the benefits of self-directed education, but they still support the right. system for for children. Uh, I think that if we're just talking about, you know, the the average people that we might interact with who haven't put too much thought into, you know, compulsory schooling versus self-directed education. Well, uh the trick is you kind of have to get them to throw out the the structure of like when you're six, you start school. By the time you're six, you know how to read. By the time you're eight, you know how to multiply. By the time you're nine, you know how to divide. Why? Why, right? Like all of this is is arbitrary. And it's a one size fits all policy. It's like we're going to take hundreds of thousands or millions, I guess, of children, and we're going to decide they all are going to be on this same schedule, learning the same things at the same time. And that's not how humans are. That's not how humans operate. Humans learn in completely different ways. They have completely different interests, and people are never going to learn on the same timetable unless they're forced to, I guess. Right. You know, I, I think that learning is natural, learning is living. And I think when kids are very young, Instead, like a six-year-old, instead of being stuck in a desk, should be free to play and explore, right? Like play is a super, super uh, important foundation for everything else in life, right? It's socialization, it's imagination, it's, it's problem solving. Like that's what I think young kids should be doing. They should be engaging in natural learning. And adults, and, and believe me, I've had lots of conversations. Like I was, a, I was a part of the Free State Project for a long time. So obviously there were a lot of home educating sure. families there and people saying, you know, gosh, my daughter's seven and she just, she doesn't want to read. Um, <laughs> I've checked back with all those people. Those problems get solved. You know, it's like, yeah, we're supposed to read when we're six. I read when I was, you know, four, they say. So why won't my daughter read when, when she's seven? Um, and and just breaking away from those timetables and and that structure, I think, is, is is tricky for people, even if even if they're supportive of the ideas. Um, I I think that I'll go back to the passion driven thing, like education when it starts to formalize to whatever degree it does, even in an unschooling environment. Um, you know, I I think the self chosen pursuits are important because. If a child has a goal, like I want to understand this, I want to be able to do this, or I want to be able to build this, 
they're going to hit roadblocks, right? Like reading, if you don't have that skill, is a roadblock to accomplishing many goals. Math, if you don't have those skills, is a roadblock to accomplishing many, many goals. You have to allow young people, I think, once again, like this is not a project for like a three-year-old, but seven, eight, eight years old, um, once they have a goal, once they have an end in mind, uh, I think a, a home educating parent just needs to facilitate ways to break through those blocks, right? So it's like, oh, if you want this thing, this is a skill you need to acquire. And I've seen that happen. You know, I worked, um, you know, one unschooler that I, I use frequently, I was just like a homeschooling facilitator. Uh, I was sent in by, by the school district and uh, you know, he really, really struggled with um, a lot of things academic as they were forced on him in first and second grade. But he was just absolutely obsessed with cryptids, you know, like uh, Bigfoot and uh, yeah. the Yeti and yeah. that thing in Mexico that eats goats. Oh, the chupacabra, my the favorite. Chupacabra. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, allegedly, of course. And, uh, you know, he was he was just fascinated with these things. And all he wanted to do was talk about it. I remember one day he, he wanted me to dig a hole so he could make a trap for Bigfoot. And I did it. It was fine with me. I didn't mind doing it. We were outside. It was a nice Learned day in New Hampshire. Right. Well, no, he had watched like he had seen some kind of video. Uh, how to set, uh, set a trap for Bigfoot? <laughs> it, put it into YouTube, everybody. It's I, there. I promise. I'm done with this interview. <laughs> I don't know if Bigfoot <laughs> comes to LA too often, but <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but these are these are like more specific examples. Another thing he was really interested in was ancient aliens. Um, through this, we, we were able to improve his reading skills, his math skills, his geography skills. Uh, you know, we wound up. I, I taught him how to make arguments. You know, he would say uh, on ancient aliens, it said who's eight. You know, so he'd be like on ancient aliens, they say that this is where we, you know, people came from and aliens helped. I said that's not good enough. That's not good enough that that's what they say on ancient aliens. I think that shows crap. A little deeper, you know? a little deeper dive here. Yeah. So I, I taught him how to make evidence. I taught an eight-year-old how to make evidence-based arguments. You know, out of a pyramid. You know, I said, "Here's your thesis at the top. Here's your your main supporting arguments, and here's the evidence that holds up each one of those supporting arguments." And this all came from him just being fascinated by ancient aliens and and this sort of thing, and that led him to actually want to learn a process of trying to figure th this sort of thing out. Right. Yeah. So we made this pyramid of how to construct an argument, and I was like, aliens didn't build this pyramid, you know. So Bigfoot and ancient aliens think, are the prove key me wrong. To exciting <laughs> can be the key to exciting the youth. Right. Right. Exactly. So so I I mean that's a an anecdote, but I think if a goal. Or, uh, you know, that an objective has gravity that will pull a learner closer to it. And if it's compelling enough, uh, you know, very little of what goes on in school, very little of what's imposed on children, first, second, third, fourth grade, at least as far as my memory is concerned, none of it's very compelling. None of it seems, um, you know, intrinsically motivated. And it is, like you said, it's never with a goal in mind. That's really interesting to me, like the, the way you kind of put that, that when there's a goal in mind and that goal is exciting, then you want to learn the steps to get there. But in school, the way it's presented to us, for me, there was never a goal of school, except I had to go to school and I had to get 
A's and I had to get these grades. Why? So I could keep going to school and eventually go to college. So this is all, this whole goal was just learning this stuff and repeating it just so I could get to this other school that I had to pay a shit ton of money for and go into debt for and yada, yada. And I don't even know why I did it, except that I was told that that's what we're supposed to do. Right. And when there's no goal that you can identify, whether you're six, you're eight, you're 12. I mean, by the time you're 14, 15, 16, it's like, yeah, college, 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 college. But how spectacularly hopeless for a six year, like an eight year old, right? It's third grade now. I I always say that middle school is the darkest time. But, you know, I'm 11 years old. I'm in the seventh grade or 12 years old. I'm in the seventh grade and I'm going, I don't think there's an end in sight. Right. I think this, I mean, yeah, you, and you don't have any perspective. This has just been your whole remembered life. Filling out worksheets, carrying around a backpack, you know, doing book reports on books you don't like. Uh, that was it. So, so I, I think there's also a hopelessness or a frustration that you could attach to what is called, lear- what school equates, uh, you know, to learning all these activities. That's um, that's very, very frustrating for a lot of young people, for sure. It was for me. Well, Brett, we're kind of starting to come up on our time soon. And as I mentioned before the show to you, uh, I did get a bunch of questions, like maybe some of the most interesting I've ever had in uh, sending questions to a guest from our Patreon subscribers, our members of the Lions of Love Liberty it. Pride. So I want to try to cram a few of these in before we wind up. And since I have so many, I don't know, maybe we can figure out afterwards uh, another time to uh, to maybe do a follow-up and hit, hit some more of these because there was... I would love that. That's yeah, so great. A ton of interest. But let me pick out a couple and, and maybe do a little dive here and see what we can do. But uh, I will start with one from uh, Dan Roberts. He wants to know how you've been able to make ends meet podcasting for so long and you know how that's changed over the years. Or, and maybe okay. you, I don't know if you do make yeah. ends meet via, via podcasting. I sure don't. But you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Yeah. So I do. Um, and the way I do it was I just copied a, a kind of subscription model from a podcast that I liked. I started doing that maybe seven years ago. And then maybe five years ago, uh, what, like, so it, after running it for two years, it was enough for me to irresponsibly quit my job and pursue this full time. Like I probably could have hung around and and worked in uh, academic so-called services for a little bit longer, like doing SAT tutoring. And that's what I did when I started the podcast. I actually ran a tutoring business. So um, I think it was, yeah, it was 2014. Actually, I I quit my job and started doing this full time. I cut my cost of living down uh, as much as I could. uh, So, so I could really commit to this. It just kind of outgrew what I could do uh, as, as a hobby. Um, so we systematized the subscription system. Uh, since then, you know, we've obviously added uh, Patreon. I've started to bring in uh, affiliates. Like if people have brands or products or services that really, really align well with our mission, I, you know, I started working on this project like a year and a half ago. I think I've only added like three or four so far. So I'm, I'm very selective. I'm not just going on a, you know, uh, uh, click funnels or click uh, right, click right. bank or whatever it is right. and adding garbage uh, I, like I'm I'm taking it very seriously so I have um, you know a few affiliates that, that I really believe in and I really like promoting and um, at the end of last year I actually launched a, a separate brand called the University and the goal with the University is to produce virtual summits on topics not taught in school and uh, you know, I polled the audience and asked them, you know, you know what the, what they were interested in learning about most. And one of the ones that came in 
is being like really popular and a lot of interest around it was um, I want better research skills. So I started thinking, well, like, why do people want better research skills to keep them to themselves or, or to be more persuasive? So we actually built a summit called Ideas Into Action, which is about how to you know, gather the best information, synthesize information more effectively and be more persuasive. So then I went out and I got you know, the people uh, that I have a lot of respect for that, that are kind of like my go-to guys uh, on you know, uh, different topics and I said, hey, would you, would you do a presentation uh, you know, on this aspect of gathering, synthesizing, or presenting information? So you know, Tom Woods is in there. Michael Malice is in there. Uh, Kevin Geary, uh, Scott Hambrick from Online Great Books, uh, Richard Grove, Kevin Cole, Jay Dyer. Uh, a, a lot of like my favorite School Sucks guests, I got to come back and, and make presentations. So, so that's probably going to be uh, the new direction, even though we still do rely on, you know, listener support through things like our subscription program and uh, Patreon. All right. Austin Broderson wants to hear your thoughts about sports and public school. Uh, he says that a lot of people justify public education by saying, you know, the poor get a cheap education. But then he sees that at the same time, there's tons of money in a lot of these high schools going to stadiums, going to sports programs. So how much of this is really going to the education part, you know, let, let alone the fact that the education part may not be very productive in the first place. Oh, and there's no clarification as to whether or not he's talking about like secondary school um, or He does not ed. clarify, so you can take it any way you want. I guess, I, well, the question would be, are you know, spending on athletics taking away from education? And the question presupposes that. I think a lot of what I hear is, you know, that people justify schools. Well, like, how will kids get the opportunity to play sports like this without the schools? That's like a lot of things that you hear about that team sports is so important to a lot of kids. Like, they, they wouldn't have those opportunities without the school. I don't know if that's the direction Austin was coming from, but that's, that's kind of what I see a lot. Okay. Well, I mean, first, it, just, to, just to the cost, like the idea that putting more money into anything produces a better product, especially when it's run right. by the government, certainly right. isn't the case in education. Um, and gosh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like I'm certainly pro playing sports. Like I think that's, that's a great opportunity for kids. And, you know, I do, I don't want to like pivot away from that question too much, but I also do recognize that as much as I dislike school, um, there is a possibility that kids in certain places, they, as, as it exists right now, and this is sad, it's sad that this is the way it is, but school has opportunities and, um, you know, almost for some of these kids, if they come from really distressed households, uh, respite from what is outside of that. And, and that's definitely, so if sports is a part of that, fine. Uh, I actually just recently spoke on my show with a, a Facebook personality called The Honest Teacher, and he mm -hmm. kind of tried to steer me away from that a little bit. He goes, yeah, but these kids who are struggling, the kids who really come from distressed backgrounds and need school as a respite, yeah, they might need school as a respite, but because they come to school with so much baggage, um, you know, they wind up being behavior problems and they wind up just sinking further and further. Um, so... I'm not answering that question, and I'm sorry to Austin. Um, well, rant, rants count as answers. In this okay, point. all right. I, I, I want to I think on that. Um, You're allowed to give open-ended thoughts, and maybe, you, you know. I do agree. I mean, if, if there's an accusation in there that sports, that money is sort of directed into sports as a kind of 
you know, show or a kind of facade that's like, look what we can do for kids. Yeah, I absolutely agree that that, that is a problem. Um, and you look at, you know, like new school constructions. And I, I remember I went, I toured the new version of my high school, maybe like this was back when I was running this tutoring business. So it was probably like eight years, nine years ago. And I couldn't even believe the extravagance mm -hmm. in this place. So the sports facilities, that was one part of it. There was also a theater, you know, a lot of spas, like all, all these things in this building that are, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like Trump's wall. You know what, everybody? It's like Trump's wall. Trump could have gotten up there in 2015 and 2016 and said, look, we're going to have a really comprehensive immigration plan and we're going to stop, you know, drugs from coming over the border, blah, blah, all the things that conservatives wanted. He could even have said just more security and he wouldn't get any pushback on it. More security. But, uh, you know, he I think he kind of took the temperature of the country. He realized what would work and he wanted to give people something that was just extremely like undeniably tangible a wall picture a big beautiful wall he said these kinds of things picture it being 20 feet higher because i'm angry <laughs> you know like these are these are things that he said uh and and that was something that people could connect to right the the visual of that so i think that you know there there is this sort of performative thing to school sports and school facilities that a parent could walk in and even if they don't say it out loud, there, there's some kind of subconscious like thing that gets them like, oh, I see where my tax money goes. Look at this. Look at this right. theater. You know, uh, look at this football stadium. So so I, I think even though I don't know a, a, enough about the question, I think I agree with the questioner and I hope he's like partially satisfied <laughs> with that. I have idea. a feeling he will be. Um Let's try okay. to squeeze one more in here, if, if, if you're cool with that. This is, this is something that I yeah, think yeah. about a lot. Um, Jon Snow asks, uh, was there a change to public school in the late 90s, early 2000s that's, that led to what seemed like an ADD epidemic? And I, this is something I think about all the time, how kids are going to these schools, obviously bored out of their mind. Uh, then, of course, at some point, acting out or you know acting out of turn, speaking out of turn. And they always, it seems like there's just been an epidemic of kids being diagnosed with ADD. Do you have any just thoughts about that overall? Uh, ADD, ADHD, and uh, the autism spectrum, I think this, this applies to all of these things. Um, there has obviously been a diagnosis expansion. So there is not, I would say, something happening in the schools, even though you could, uh, you know, people talk about all sorts of environmental factors from television to GMOs to vaccines contributing to these kinds of things. Um, th there's been a diagnostic expansion. Right. So more people that, you know, the diagnostic criteria expanded a lot from the DSM four to the DSM five. If people are unfamiliar with that, that's the, the, the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists at school psychologists would use uh, to, to diagnose kids with various, uh, you know, disorders from like oppositional defiant ADHD um, and, and, you know, a handful of others as well. Executive functioning problems. Uh, you know, all of that is in the DSM-4, now the DSM-5. So, so the diagnostic expansion, I would say, is, is a big part of that. So you think that the symptoms are probably th the same as they've always been? I mean, just the fact that, I, I, to me, I think the biggest environmental factor is the school <laughs> that, that's driving kids to sort of lash out and act out or whatever they're doing that ends up with these diagnoses. But uh, what really worries me is the fact that they take these diagnoses now, diagnoses, I don't know exactly how you're supposed to say that, 
uh, and they basically put kids on meth. I mean, they're basically just giving giving you know young children the essential equivalent of meth, putting them on, on a lot of these ADD drugs. And I can't imagine what that does to them, not just throughout their development, but throughout their adult life. Well, yeah, and I, I mean to paraphrase uh, uh, the oceanographer Jacques Cousteau, I think he said in like the 1950s, like let's not put whales in an aquarium and pretend we're studying them. You know, like how they behave naturally. Let's not pretend that you know we're we're learning about how whales behave while we you know capture them and trap them in pools. So uh, yeah, I I think because of the I'm actually surprised like as violent and as toxic as school environments are that they're not much worse considering how people are you know cloistered together and forced to interact. I mean that's obviously the roots of things like bullying. Um, uh, the forced interactions, but yeah, you're not you're not observing people in any kind of natural environment, and um, obviously, you know, it, it's an easy observation for us to make that the government education system is is entirely incompatible with the you know the values of a free society or the goals of a free person, and um, you know, I, I really observed in my career, which, which, you know, took place in a variety of environments, that people responded to those environments, usually negatively. And if you have a diagnostic system on the standby, um, you know, and, and incentivized to um, intervene with uh, problems that, you know, interfere with people being good compliant students, uh, that's that's a recipe for disaster as far as as far as like yep these young people are concerned and yeah and we've obviously seen that accelerate in the last twenty years I mean I could have been diagnosed with any of these things in the nineteen eighties fortunately you know the diagnostic criteria hadn't expanded that much then so I wasn't gotcha well Brett I really do appreciate you uh, you know sticking out and answering a couple of questions and appreciate your time so uh, before I let you go of course. Why don't you tell everybody how they can find out more about the School Sucks Project? Of course, everyone listening knows how to find podcasts, so you can do that easily. But uh, And let them know where they can find out uh, more just about the School Sucks uh, community in general and how, and how they can find out more uh, about self-directed education and how you help with that. All right. So my website is uh, schoolsucksproject.com. If you are fairly new to these ideas or you're already imagining having conversations with people who are new to these ideas... Uh, we have a YouTube channel, username School Sucks Podcast. Right at the top of that YouTube channel, there is a video series that I made uh, out of John Taylor Gatto's book, The Underground History of American Education. It's basically like a documentary style thing broken up into 15, fairly short, easily shareable, uh, each like complete in their own right videos. Uh, it covers the Prussian system. Uh, lots of uh, origins of school and school problems type stuff. So that's a great place to start. Uh, the podcast is obviously confined through through any podcatcher, but I would recommend that uh, people take a look at the website because what we do basically breaks into four domains. We talk about you know school problems, school history, school politics, school problems as like one category, and then our educational solutions where just. In spite of the name of our show, we actually focus most of our time talking about uh, education. That would be like uh, topics in personal development. So that's everything from like, uh, you know, emotional health to organization and productivity, critical thinking and learning, uh, which is like we did a series on logical fallacies called Logic Saves Lives. 
uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff on like critical thinking methodologies. And then our other our other section is alternative education. So we've got tons of shows about alternative schools, unschooling. Uh, I traveled around the country in 2017, went to alternative schools, talked to a bunch of home educating families. Uh, so, so whether you're interested in, you know, the personal development uh, topics that you or your child is never going to learn in school, uh, critical thinking and learning um, tools and techniques that you're not going to learn in school, or alternative schools that are never going to be talked about in school, or the history of school, which is never going to be talked <laughs> about in school, go to schoolsucksproject.com. And uh, if you're ready for one level above that, this is the last thing that I will plug. You know, our expansion on what we've been doing is these virtual summits. So if, uh, you know, you're out there and you've tried to have lots of conversations about education, economics, the philosophy of liberty, and you walk away from a lot of these interactions wishing you had been more persuasive, more patient, more prepared, um, please take a look at this, this summit we put together. It's at sspuniversity.com. You can just spell that university, sspuniversity.com slash ideas into action. And like I said, it's 12 great presenters covering like all aspects of not only how to gather and synthesize information, but also how to use it, you know, Tom Wood style to smash people. But we're not smashing, you know, we're, we're not smashing like Tom does. I say I always say like public smashing. If, if you get called out in public, yeah, smash away. But, you know, in our in our personal lives, we should really be trying to build bridges. And, you know, that's more about connection and persuasion than it is about smashing. And that's the approach that we take in the summit. So it's SSB University dot com slash ideas into action. If you look at the price and it's too much, email me and uh, tell me who your favorite presenter is and I'll uh, come up with a way to give you a discount and also help their cause uh, with a, uh, a coupon. Well, now everyone's going to try so. to get the discount. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I, that I'm perfectly happy to give it to anyone. They can look at the list. They could say, I love Michael Malice. I love Tom Woods. Uh, you know, and, and I'll help them out because I want to get people there. We're, we're encoring. They can buy it. It's a digital product and have access to it right now. But in March, we're actually over three consecutive Saturdays. We're going to encore the summit uh, live, which basically means I'll play the presentations and then we'll talk about them in between, which was really cool last time we did it at the end of last awesome. year. So that's, uh, that's everything. I mean, if you're, if you're really super excited, go follow me on Instagram too. School Sucks Project. Brett Vinat, thank you so much for coming on. Keep up all the great work you're doing with School Sucks and keep on roaring. Thank you so much. And same to you with Lions of Liberty. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. I look forward to doing it again. <laughs> All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brett Venat. How have I not had him on the show till now? I don't know, but he was an awesome guest. Uh, I've been checking out his work for a long time. He's just one of those people that just fell through the cracks over the years. But here we are. We always find a way to get things done eventually. So thank you so much to Brett. Uh, behind the scenes, Brett was very flexible. I had to change uh, this the interview time on him a couple times, and he rolled with the punches. So big shout out to Brett, and big shout out to the Pride, the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon, for giving me some great questions. So much so that Brett has agreed to come back and do uh, an extended version that may be for the pride only a little live stream taking a bunch of questions from our patreon supporters just another reason to support us on patreon besides the fact that you get to support this show and send us to events like the libertarian national convention which we will be going to and will be attending in may 
Of course, uh, myself and Brian, the host of Wednesday's show, Electric Liberty Land, we both spoke at the Libertarian Party California convention a few weeks ago, and we've got a little video of that event that we put out, so be sure to check that out. That will be on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, yada, yada, yada. I don't have a, a URL to give you. You guys are smart. You can find things. Come on. It's 2020, and your podcast listeners, you know how to find things on the internet. And if you haven't yet, one thing you got to find is the subscribe button for this show, because it's not just me here every single Monday with the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. You also have Brian McWilliams, the aforementioned Brian McWilliams, who every single Wednesday brings you his special comedic brand and look at comedy, culture, and liberty on electric liberty land, while John Odie, as I affectionately call him, Odermatt, wraps up the week with his hard-hitting and often inspirational look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all three of these shows for the price of one. That price is free. That's the beauty of this whole thing. So be sure to hit that subscribe button. And please, while you're there, leave us a five-star rating and a great review, especially on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. That really does help boost our ranking and get us in the earbuds of more and more people out there. My friends, next week, I've got a big show for you. It's been a while. But finally, it is going to be the return of the Liberty Draft. We are going to round out the Liberty Draft. If you don't know what it is, see the aforementioned comment about you being able to find things on the internet. You can always come over to our public forum on Facebook. That is called the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar, you will be able to get right on in there. And if you're nice, maybe I will post some of the the last draft shows in the forum. So you can get yourself caught up, learn a little bit more about our Liberty Draft teams and what the heck is a Liberty Draft. Well, you got to tune in next week or listen to the best past episodes to find out. Until then, my friends, live long and live free.